Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is the face, the voice, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hey, baby. Doing good. I am your co-host of The Ass, Mark Bigney. And today, we sadly announce that we are actually going to mix things up. Normally, we talk about board games here on this board gaming podcast, but today we're going to talk about sports ball. Sports ball. It had to happen. Eventually, the rest of majority culture went and, and got its greasy tendrils into us. And now we're just going to be like your favorite drive time sportscasters. Today in Atlanta, two teams did stuff. And there we go. So Touchdown. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter. And our feature game this week, truly a game of sports ball, Trick Shot by Wolf Designer. So with that in mind, let us head straight into the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play this week? Mark, there is advanced Agricola. And then there's what I got to play, which was super advanced Agricola. Let me lay it out for you here. So feeding your workers is not enough. You also need to feed them every time you place them. And the amount of food that they need at the end of every round doubles, right? Because this is, you know, we want to go hardcore. Sure. And then if you place a worker so that it fills a row, you know, the rows of action. So if yes. you place a worker that fills the row, then you kick out all the other workers that are in that row and the other players have to give back the resources that they got from those spaces, but still <laughs> locks those spaces out. <laughs> and then during harvest, uh, one crop in each field will spoil and one animal in each pen dies of sickness. But if it's Just to show the others who's boss. That's right. And if it's, uh, if you only have one animal left and it's the one in your home, then it spreads the sickness to your family. Okay. And you have to roll a D6 for every family member and on a seven, and unless you roll a seven, they die. I, I think this metaphor has gotten out of hand, Walker. Why don't you say- This is the Crystal Palace expansion. Okay. <laughs> so we played Crystal Palace. Walker, what, it, what, it, you, clearly you thought the Crystal Palace was too forgiving. No, I, I, it's a fine game, Mark, but I mean, like, it takes that Agricola needing to feed your workers and then turns it up to, like, 1,100. <laughs> like, it's just constant pressure of you never have enough stuff, go into debt, you know, you'll never, you know, you're going to go lose your income. It's this constant pressure throughout the game, and I just thought it was just too much for, you know, like, I'm here to have fun, not to worry every single action and everything I do that's going to lose me money. So Crystal Palace is a dice placement game where your dice aren't rolled. And what Walker is alluding to is that at the top of every round, you decide what your dice are going to be, but you have to pay every round the sum value of all your dice. So yeah, you can take four sixes, but then you have to pay 24 bucks. Sorry, pounds. Uh, people who do not use dollars uh, have sometimes... I assure you, when I say buck, I mean base unit of currency. So it's truly international. Or I could be using quid, which is quantifying unit identifying denomination. That's true. We're very cosmopolitan here at Swag. Anyway, 24 bucks. You pay your 24 bucks, and it's a game very much like a Wallace game where you're expected to go into debt. You do start with a lot of money. This is one of the games where you start with more money than you're ever going to see in your lifetime. The, the rules do a good job of communicating the inevitability of loans. And it's one of those things where it's a fascinating study in loss aversion. Could they have calibrated the economy such that you didn't have to take out loans? And the game would have been substantively unchanged? Yes. I think you absolutely could have done that. But they decided deliberately to make it very economically punishing, money to be scarce, your income to be difficult to come by and ephemeral, and almost inevitable that everyone took out loans. We, I think the person who took out the fewest loans in our game took out two loans. And yeah, you can pay back loans, but they're going to be negative victory points to you at the end of the game, whether you pay them back or not. There were obviously fewer negative victory points if you pay them back. 
And I, I thought it was an interesting study in how to calibrate economies for spec because clearly the designers wanted it to feel this way. The designer could, as I say, could have made it feel differently without really changing much of the fundamentals, but decided to make it punishing. And you did not appreciate that. Part. Well, because that's if it ended it there, that would be fine. But then there's the uh, putting in higher dice than other players in spots. There's the your fluctuating income that you're going to get every turn because not only does it go down, it goes down automatically. And if yes. it goes down a certain point, you get punished even further. So you're losing. So we're going to punish you even harder. <laughs> and then what I alluded to was the black market. Oh, we finally get a break, even though you have to pay even more money to get into the black market. If someone fills it, all of that money that you've invested in the black market is gone and you lose all of those pieces. So that's a moral lesson, Walker. Oi. It, yeah, it is a moral lesson, Mark. Don't play Crystal <laughs> Palace. Well, crime doesn't pay unless you're the last one to do the crime, in which case crime pays very well. I enjoyed Crystal Palace more than you did. I didn't think it was great. I'm not going to be chagrined that you don't want to play it again, primarily because this is a classic story of a lot of worker placement euros. The fundamental engine, I thought, was very cool. The idea whereby you have these dice, you pay for them. Some spots, you have to have a die of a certain value. But then, when it comes time to execute the action spaces, they get executed in order from highest die to lowest die, ties being broken by whoever got there first. So there's this question of... How much do I need to invest in order to make sure that the action spaces trigger in the way that I want them to? And that, I thought, was largely interesting in theory, but it didn't really pan out because effectively all you're doing is you're going and you're worrying about your income, as you say, and you're buying some cards that'll get you points. That's more or less it. And that didn't grab me nearly to the same extent. And so when it comes to an interesting action selection system, but then that doesn't pay off. That isn't quite enough to hold my interest. I never said I didn't want to play it. I just got to make sure I'm in the right mindset next time I play it. And I don't think it would happen in any gaming group, but if you brought this like to a gaming night or introduce it to new people, there's a way to just to tank the game. Like if someone's not having fun or they know they're losing, they can just set all their dice to six. It's like, so what? I'll just take more loans. I'll just take all the spaces that I want, blocking other people out. And, you know, therefore, you know, sort of like affecting how the game you know, ends yeah, in. but I actually I think I mean honestly, if if we're going to address it, I think that a lot of other euros have a better ability for someone to tank the game. Just because somebody decides to run their economy into the toilet doesn't mean that they're going to be affecting. Say, there's no inflation in the game, for example. So in Crystal Palace, you're not going to be affecting the economy too much. And yeah, maybe you'll be taking all these spaces, but they've taken the, that person has taken themselves out of contention, and so I don't. No, it means they could take vital cards that you needed. Stuff like that, you know what I mean? Like, you know. Oh, the- if they target you specifically, sure. But I mean, again, if if you posit, does this game survive someone deliberately playing badly so as to ruin the experience for everybody else, and or specifically targeting another player so as to ruin their experience? I don't think the Crystal Palace is necessarily worse than many other no. heroes. No, I'm not saying it's you know it's a huge detriment, but I mean it could happen. You're you're talking about what you can were considering doing, aren't you? This is very telling. No, I had a, I had a specific goal in that game, <laughs> much like I goal? do in many games. Well, I, I can't remember it offhand. Okay. Like many Euro games where there's so many different things to do. Sure. I usually find one avenue. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to max out that, right? And right. Then, and then I said, okay, well, I really need those particular actions. I know I'm in last place, but I really want to get that one track. Yes. Tracks on tracks. I want mm. to get that one track filled out. And at least I can have like an inner moral victory. And I looked around the table and said, well, that's really going to affect the rest of the table if I just, you know, max out all my dice just for the sake of me wanting to, you know, that type of thing. Fair enough. Fair enough. And 
that was Crystal Palace. Designed by Carson Lomber, and it's published by Foylan Spiel. So what did we not talk about last week, Mark? <laughs> last week, despite talking about so many games, we neglected to talk about Shot and Totten 2. That's true. Yes. And not because the game is forgettable, but just because uh, this is a failure of note-keeping. At a certain point, the sheer volume of games. <laughs> it's true. So I agree. Shot and Totten is a fantastic little spin off the original. Shot and Totten 2, sorry, is a fantastic little spin off the original game where it's actually like an attacker versus a defender as opposed to just two opposing sides. I don't have too much to say because I only got to play it the once. I'm interested in revisiting it. I don't know if the asymmetry is going to prove to be fascinating or merely gimmicky because the the, the original Shot and Totten is so very solid. And in point of fact, uh, one of my misgivings about Shot and Totten relates to the side I didn't play. As the attacker, playing Shot and Totten was very, very similar. As the defender, however, you don't have the luxury of being able to engage in the proofs that make Battle Line slash Shot and Totten so engaging. Namely, if you can prove, based on what's already been played and or discarded, that the opponent can't win, you can win prematurely, thereby denying them a, a placement for their cards, which, near the mid and late game, can be crucial because you desperately want a place to ditch your cards you don't want and or pass. Because the hallmark for me of a lot of Reiner Knizia card games is the desperate desire to pass, but you have to play and commit yourself all the time. This was also true of Lost Cities. And, as I say, the defender can't do that. Similarly, the attacker can just withdraw all their cards at any time and just forget what they've committed up till that point. Now, it is the pressure they do have the pressure to win, so it's not like that there's no burden associated with that. They've wasted a whole bunch of placements in a game where time is of the essence. I I, I want to see how that plays out from the other side because I was the attacker, I liked being able to prove things, and the defender also doesn't win fights. They're just out to delay. So again, it's 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 those are the biggest changes in terms of the fundamental formula. There's also minor things around the margins about cooks tasting chickens, which I'm sure makes sense if you are familiar with siegecraft in Scotland. Well, the the art is adorable and amazing. It is adorable and amazing, and you get to dump you know boiling oil on people, so that's always fun. Um. <laughs> uh, Certain definitions of fun. I thought we were going to use the term fun here in the podcast Hope as a so, way yeah. to, uh, to evaluate games. Shot and Totten 2 was fun. <laughs> it's by my favorite designer. Stick it on the box. It, it was by my favorite designer. So I'm looking forward to trying it again. I've been playing Shot and Totten slash Battle Line on, uh, off and on for many, many years. And I am looking forward to seeing this evolution because I love watching Rainer Knizia evolve on his ideas. And that was our early experiences with Shot and Totten 2. So, Mark, there was this game that came out last year that got huge hype when it was announced and when it first came out, and then, at least in our circles and everything that I was looking at, sort of disappeared. Blackout Hong Kong by Alexander Pfister. And I was very interested to know, you know, why this petered out, why it didn't, you know, keep in people's minds. And we got to try it. We got a copy that was not too overly expensive. And I thought, I loved it. I really enjoyed all parts of it. I had two very key mechanisms that I haven't seen in many other games before. Normally, the fact that uh, you're sort of sort of deck building a little bit and you have some three primary colors that you're trying to build up, but they will score different things depending on where the dice go. You're going to roll dice and it's yellow, red, and blue, and they're going to go on different resources. And then the yellow, red, and blue cards in your hand will get you these random resources every turn. So you sort of have to balance it out or you can go really heavy into one color and hope that that particular one gets rolled a lot. 
I thought that was very interesting. And then how you played your cards, I thought was very interesting too. You're playing them into these rows. You start with three actions and you're, and you're forming these rows of cards. So the three actions go on the bottom of every row. And then once you get down to a certain number of cards, you get to do what they call, I think it was called a refresh. And then you just grab the largest row of cards and it goes back into your hand. And I thought those two mechanisms were fantastic. And I'll let you talk about the mechanism that was not fantastic. Scouting was tedious and awful. And I'm wondering if that's the reason why it, it, it disappeared. There, so there's a scouting phase where the tempo of the game grinds to a halt and people engage in a series of uninteresting calculations and fun goes to die. And I'm exaggerating. It's not, a, it's not a massive part of the game. Basically, you get to look at these face-down stacks of tiles and you can basically burn cards to try to satisfy them. And then you try to satisfy certain recipes. So there's two ways to satisfy recipes in Blackout Hong Kong. And this relates directly to achieving objectives, which is how you unlock cards. In a very Fisterian fashion, Alexander Fister has a number of very determinate design influences that you can see. One of the things he likes is, as, as you put it, kind of sort of deck building with a circuitous and sometimes tortured route to getting the cards in the first place. You don't just buy cards. You buy cards and then they sit somewhere. And then you achieve an objective and then you get the card. But then sometimes the card goes somewhere else. And then you have to heal the card and then you score for the card again. And I don't mean to sound that this is this was unpleasant. That part I actually really liked, the way cards circle around. But the scouting was just obnoxious. Everyone would look at these face-down tiles of tiles, look at them in secret, then maybe decide to try to satisfy one and then burn some cards. And might, all of this for a couple of fuel. And you might do this because you're trying to satisfy the objective of getting two different scout tiles of the same color. But all the colors are gray. That, that's the mini game. Yeah. Is, is figure out what color is this tile. Yes. I thought that was a fun game. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it was the objection over over the scouting elements. But everything related to the cards I thought was great. Everything related to the board I thought was largely forgettable. Uh, the, the the part that didn't annoy me like scouting did, but that I thought was largely forgettable is you're putting out these huts and as you encircle areas of the board, you can get victory points by surrounding certain areas, with, nominally by reactivating uh, the power grid. But I will say... Uh, it may sound like I'm, I'm down on the game, but I agree with you. The bits that were clever were really clever. I really liked how the card flow worked. This may be my favorite Fister. And that's not nothing because I've enjoyed a lot of his previous games. But one of the things that I really didn't like about a lot of his previous stuff, especially Mombasa and Maracaibo, but even Great Western Trail, was that he, you know, has a somewhat problematic relationship with colonialism, despite his attempts to hand wave it away. And for the first time, what we have here was a lovely little story, and it's it feels even vaguely semi-co-op in a number of ways, of trying to help rebuild Hong Kong after the, the grid goes down, which is particularly timely based on what's happening in the south of the United States. And you had a crew of diverse backgrounds and lots of representation of women and going and trying to go and solve a problem together. And that part I thought was great. And so I, I felt that this was definitely the, the 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 fister that I've enjoyed the most so far. Yeah, I can't wait to try it again. I'm glad I grabbed it. And that is Blackout Hong Kong by Alexander Fister, put out by Eggerspiel. Played another game of Cthulhu Death May Die. I love Cthulhu Death May Die. It is so dumb. And one of the great things about it, and this is this is one of the actually clever bits, is the way it leverages the scenario system is so excellent. Now, the different old ones, I don't think, have a particular degree of personality. Certainly not to the same extent that you might find in some other Cthulhu games like uh, Cthulhu Wars. But the different scenarios, and it's a shame that a lot of the best work was buried in either the expansion or in the exclusive stuff. Huey and Louie and I played another scenario from the from the Chapter 2 expansion box. It was a murder mystery. We show up at this hermitage, 
and someone's been murdered and we have to go interrogate people to find out who did it. And then once we find out who did it, we have to kill the suspect. <laughs> and that's how you disrupt the ritual. It was wonderful. I love it when you just say, what's going to happen now? And I really don't, I really didn't get as many of those satisfying experiences with just the base game, six scenarios, which is really a shame. Again, when you have a scenario based game, you got to make sure that your early ones show the best of what you have to offer rather than just being like, well, we can't challenge people too much. We better give them what's expected. It's like, well, maybe from a rules perspective, maybe sort of, but even then I think you should probably swing for the fences and risk being too complicated rather than risk putting people off by their not being enough. A lot of games do that. But I enjoyed Cthulhu Death May Die. At the end of the game, it's a dice fest. You're just trying to punch the great old one real hard in the face, but it's so charming and stupid. I still enjoy it. Cthulhu Death May Die. Yeah, I like you said, the scenarios are so fun. I love that one we did where it was like the masquerade party and you sort of had to like get all the guests in sort of a corner and unmask them and figure out, you know, who was who. Yeah, just and I think that one was a, a Kickstarter one. As that well, was also a Kickstarter exclusive. Well, it's also uh, it's also a bit of a gimmick because it uses all of the investigators in the Kickstarter exclusive box. True. So that one at least made sense for being a Kickstarter exclusive because you needed a massive cast for it to work. So you and I got to play Anachrony with the new expansion, Fractures of Time. Uh, I haven't got to play Anachrony very much, but this really, I think, brings it back out onto the table and makes it more accessible and a little more free-flowing, much like uh, you know other games when they add expansion to unhandcuff you in some way. That seems to be like the ongoing thing. You know, People complain, say it's all, not enough economy, not enough money, not enough something, and then the expansion comes out, which you know loosens that up a little bit and makes the game flow a little easier. And I think this also comes out in this expansion where now you can uh, sort of warp time and move your workers to other spaces and it sort of lets you get more resources in every turn and sort of makes the game flow a little little quicker and it doesn't really you know add too much to the rules well it's weird it, it's a fewer number of rounds but it ends up lasting roughly the same amount of time because as you say a lot of workers end up pulling double or sometimes even triple duty and I agree with you. The expansion is really great. I particularly like the additional sci-fi trappings of having a time machine to worry about. It's called a fracture device. Your actual time machines are generators. I've talked about this before. But managing your fracture device and setting out your new specialist to make sure that it's working properly and to try to get rid of the glitches in the time stream that you've made. That part felt really cool, and I think it really gave a, a significant amount of thematic variety. And the rules overhead... Inacrony is not a simple game, but the, the additional rules overhead from Fractures of Time is somewhat minimal. And so I think that Fractures of Time may be one of those things where it's like, look, if you're ready for the base game, you're ready for Fractures of Time. So I might only play with Fractures of Time going forward. Uh, Fractures of Time we got as a, uh, as a review copy from Mind Clash. We already had the base game. I already liked the base game. It was my favorite David Zirkze. But I agree with you that the additional flexibility here and the additional element of planning, wanting to know where your worker's going to go first because you know they're going to go somewhere else and trying to figure out how to deal with the workers in that way because it doubles down on an element of anachrony that really is, I think, the unique element that sets it apart from a lot of other worker placement games. It's not entirely unique. And that is that you have to manage your workforce. Even more so than you have in a game like Feyerabend, uh, which, you know, in theory, that's the entirety of the game. But you have workers in a series of different flavors. You have to worry about whether you have enough power suits to send some of the workers out. You have to need to worry about whether you have enough building spaces to adequately use your workforce. And then you have to worry about getting your workforce motivated again. And this can be a combination of not caring and sending them back to work unhappy, getting enough water to make sure that they can go back happy, or even sending them to spaces so that they don't get tired in the first place. And Fractures of Time interacts with that in a very subtle and very 
non-rules complicated way. And that's the bit of acrony that I really like. The, the, you know, the fundamental bit, if you really want to bore down to it, an acrony is very, very much like a lot of other worker placement games. You take out some loans as time travel, you go and get resources, you build buildings, you get points, you do a variety of stuff. It's the worker variety and managing your workforce and everything that goes with that, that I think really sets it apart. That and I think if you can have a worker placement game with giant stompy mechs or without giant stompy mechs, I think there's a right answer. It's not so much, you know, the, the games that where people pull their workers back at different times, right? So you can sort of like hold out and hope that that space frees up. So that's what this, you know, shimmering around opens up. Because before, you know, a person went there, okay, well, that space is done for the rest of the turn. And so that's not there anymore. Now you can sort of say, well, I'm going to do these couple more actions and hopefully that person will flick away and then I can take that spot. And you've already talked about, uh, you know, knowing where to put your workers, you know, first and where they're going to go second. And it's sort of like where they're going to end up as well because a lot of spaces have like a you know if your workers left here at the end of the round then it gets this bonus so you got to make sure you know they get in there after the fact absolutely and then and i'm just you know going over what you already said but like triples down on the theme like before we talked about how it you know blah 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 time travel and didn't really feel like it you're just sort of taking loans but now they've just you know given you a time machine letting your guys sort of like you know whip around and sort of like manipulate time a little bit more it just sort of brings you into that game a little bit further and i just i really enjoyed my my time with anachrony this week so did i i will point out one misgiving i have about the expansion though the one bit that felt both ancillary and a little underbaked and a little bit of information overload and that was the technology deck you now have a separate set of they're kind of like buildings but not really they function kind of sort of the same way as buildings but they give you end game victory points and they give you a special power and they're really cheap i'm not saying they're overpowered i'm just saying that sometimes they're an obvious buy and we're at the point now where if even if you're playing with no additional modules, you're going to be flipping back and forth between two different sets of cross-references, which sometimes is unavoidable, especially in the game like Anachrony, where there are a whole bunch of different modules and a whole bunch of things to reference. How, what does this building do? What does this super project do? What does this faction ability do? What's my evacuation condition? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The technologies, to me, felt like one bit too many. But unfortunately, you cannot extricate them. It's not a modular expansion. There are modules to have but not within the Fractures of Time experience. I would have probably shaved the technologies off and probably tried to make them a module. But you, but you can just do what I do, just extricate them yourself. Like both games that I've played, I've just ignored them completely. And, I, and I, I don't think I did badly. I know I didn't do badly in this recent game. I'm not sure how I did in the first game. But, but it's like one of these zeros where you can just ignore a whole part of the game and still not do too badly. And then if we play it again more recent, you know, again soon, then I'll be able to incorporate that part of the game into the strategy. That's true, but as the rules explainer, I still have to explain what all the technologies yes, do anyway. Sure. So to a certain extent, I didn't have that luxury. And even in contexts where I'm happy to blinker myself off, there's no built-in way in anachrony to do that other than your evacuation condition, right? If there were contracts or if you could just seek to avoid doing any of those things, that's fine. But as it is, it's a, it can be a significant chunk of points and there's no obvious guardrail to blinker it off. So I, I respect the fact that, and I agree with you, that is the appropriate recourse for a gamer, especially if you're just getting into anachrony or if you haven't played it in a long time it's like all right that's the one thing i'm gonna set to the side but it's a little too consequential i fear for that kind of attitude for anybody that really was trying to be competitive not that you weren't but i I, as i say i would have been happier had it been designed as as an expansion module and that is anachrony designed by david tootsie and put out by mind clash games love me some mind clash man we get to play more games of scapegoat this is by John Perry at Any Board and Cards. This is a review copy we got that is the same designer of Airland and Sea. I love Scapegoat. <laughs> I absolutely adore it. It's 
it's all, all, often the case in your longer social deduction games that there's an inflection point. The one moment where the hidden bad person has to make a play or issue a bluff or lie or, or take a risky move. And that's all that Scapegoat is. Scapegoat has distilled that down and boiled it down. People have been raving for years uh, about Coup or Coup G51 or a variety of versions of Coup. I do not like Coup because I don't think that it calibrates the necessity for deception well enough. You can play Coup entirely straight. And I've seen many, I played it uh, about a dozen times, which is to say I've spent about 10 minutes playing Coup. And I've seen many, many, many people win just by playing it straight. And I, uh, that, that, that to me is fine. It's okay. But at that point, you're playing a game like Citadels or a simple card game where you're just managing your money. And that's not what I want out of a game like Coup or Scapegoat. I want a game where you have to try to suss out what's going on, figure out what other people are doing, who other people are, and sometimes make a bold gambit. And that's exactly what Scapegoat is. I, I sincerely think that it is going to be my, my preferred filler for the next little while. It's, it's a great go-to game. It's got charming artwork. And it really is a case of that the paranoia starts right away and never lets up. And then you can play again after everyone's made a mistake because <laughs> it's it's still very tricky. We're still trying to figure out a little bit more about the metagame. I was about to say that the exact same time. Look, really looking forward to us getting more comfortable with it. And then you can sort of double think people where where you sort of have a heavy suspicion that you're the scapegoat. And you can make a play to to make someone almost positive that they are yes. and force them to go and thereby, you know, making you win, but not of your hand. So I'm looking forward to that kind of play. Yeah. Never a dull moment in scapegoat. And so far, if it's a social deduction game that can get the approval of both myself and of Walker, you know, you've got something special. So that's definitely a high praise as far as I'm concerned. Cause I, I, I love almost all social deduction games and you Walker, I think it's fair to say are indifferent to most of them. Yes. I was I was thinking that just the other day, but you know I love for whatever reason I love Deception Hong Kong. I, it's just a weird thing. I, I don't know. Maybe because there's maybe there's just more of a game there. There's like the you know the hints of the forensic scientist, and you sort of there's more of like a co-op-y type feel to it. You where, really like making connections between things. You like being able to connect different ideas to things. It's 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 one of the reasons why I think you like to try to guess what the iconography on a reference means. It's the same kind of thing in Inception. It's like, well, what is this word referring to? Well, it could refer to any one of these things. Less the social deduction-y aspect. I, I don't think it's fair to say because it's more of a game. I just think it's because yeah. you approach it more like you would approach Mysterium, which is fine. And that's Scapegoat. We got to play Court of Miracles again. It, it is It never fails to satisfy it is a fantastic sort of worker placement where you can upgrade your workers, where you're sort of manipulating the board, where the – I don't want to say the end game falls apart, but there is this heavy, heavy puzzle element. To, I'll say the end game can fall, can fall apart. Can fall apart. It can feel like it's falling apart, but as long as you know that that's going to happen almost every time, you got to know that it's everyone's going to get down to a few pieces and you need to puzzle out your move and 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 – and finish that game on your turn or else you've given it away to somebody else. Yeah, the arc of the endgame of Court of Miracles tends to f- boil down to the same kind of pattern. And this could be groupthink. If other people have had different experiences, I'm, I'm curious to hear about it. Somebody gets down to one piece away from victory. The rest of the table looks around and says, okay, well, clearly we need to kneecap them because that's just self-interest. And it doesn't lead to kingmaking, but then it sends the game back to a sort of homeostasis where a number of players need two pieces to win. And then somebody gets two pieces in one turn. And that's usually how you win. So you have to kind of figure out, assume that in order to win, you're going to need to get two pieces out at the same time. And to do that, you need the right cards. 
And that's where I think things really get problematic for me. I've seen most games get determined by who was able to leverage the right cards at the right time. And sometimes that's just being clever. I'm, I'm not going to say that it's all about drawing, you know, the I win card. But there are a certain number of cards, the Chariot especially, that seem very, very determinative in your ability to pull off that specific endgame combination. And so it's a good thing that the game is so quick and so enjoyable. I don't really mind that the endgame can fall apart. It doesn't seem very robust because the theme also lends it to this to this notion of king making of like well i'm gonna spite you and make sure you can't win because we're all filthy criminals so i i happy to play court of miracles anytime we we streamed it on saturday for our parasocial saturdays this is the term that a listener suggested for the name for our regular streaming at 10 a.m on saturday mornings est Uh, let's just say saturdays (laughs) this coming saturday is at two we're doing a it's a wonderful world. world. This Saturday at two o'clock uh, on Twitch, we'll be streaming. It's a wonderful world with the new expansion. Yeah, so I agree. Court of Miracles is very charming, and I'm willing to forgive the fact that it falls apart, even though I kind of resent it. And that is Court of Miracles, designed by Vincent Bruez and Gilheim Gutrand, put out by Lucky Duck Games. Next, I got to play a couple of games on Board Game Arena, which I'll. Bl- go through very quickly res arcana i think uh i didn't like the first play i've only played it once before in real life but the second play i think i think when you're under less uh like sort of time constraints i know it's the first time you want to keep the flow of the game working you're seeing all these new cards for the first time while trying to you know grok the rules at the same time maybe it was too much for my feeble mind hmm but this now the second time i played it i really enjoyed it you have time to look at the cards time to you know sort out exactly how the rules work. It's much like magic where you're just trying to get these combos, pulling in the mana, grabbing the proper cards of that particular mana that you're generating a lot of so you can transfer that into victory points. I'm looking forward to playing this again in real life. This is Res Arcana by Thomas Lehman, put out by Sandcastle Games. And the other one, another game that came out on board game, no, I'm not going to say their name anymore. Mark. No. No. I'm never getting a check now. (laughs) It's true. Um, So Medina is also online. Uh, Medina is this fantastic game that I've had in my collection for a while. It's it's, uh, survived all the cullings. It's got these huge blocky wooden pieces. This is the second edition by Stronghold Games. So you're given a collection of like four different color of buildings, some merchants, some, some uh, like little additions that you're going to put on the, on the, on your, on your apartments or on your little dwellings. And it's all hidden in behind your screen. So when it's your turn, you're going to put two of these pieces out. They only can ever be one color of building started at a time unless you can't place because everything has to have a one space barrier around it. So you're doing these interesting things of, okay, well, either I can cap this because you're only allowed to cap, you know, okay, this build, this purple building cluster is big enough. I'm going to cap it, but can only, you can only ever do purple once. So I already got my purple. I'm going to start this purple over in this corner where it can't get very big and people can only put their purple there and someone's going to have to cap it and get a smaller one than mine or just that that sort of blocking and, and manipulating the board and, and building walls and trying to keep, you know, your majority. It's got all sorts of these weird scoring mechanisms, especially with like a, there's a watering hole in the middle and you get more points for building around the watering hole and you're building this railroad of merchants around the buildings, which also scores more points. It just looks fantastic and it's really fun to play. And I'm so glad that it's now online. This is Medina, designed by Stefan Dora, and it's put out by Stronghold Games. Those 
are the games we played this week. Well, I do have one more game that's kind of a segue to the news section. As a segue into the news and why it doesn't really matter, we have resumed our campaign of Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, which we discuss in The Cure Files. So the Hobo Chronicles, which had been our discussion of the Jaws of the Lion, has been suspended because it was the replacement that we were using to replace for this previously suspended Pandemic campaign. We've now resumed the previously suspended, so we're suspending the thing that came in for the suspension. And the the Cure Chronicles will be resuming for our Patreon backers, well, as we discuss Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. Coop, we hardly knew you. Coop! In further news, I just want to give a brief shout-out and uh, kudos to what Board Game Geek is doing for Black History Month, because every day in Black History Month, they're calling attention to another black creator or media personality or artist or what have you in the board gaming hobby. And from what I have heard from people that they've reached out to and other commenters, they've done it the right way. They didn't go to somebody they know and say, uh, well, could you, could you give us a list of people? They went and did the work. They found people. They wrote up profiles for them and said, look, here's what we've got. Do you have any comments or, or do you want to participate in this rather than offloading all the work? on to racialized members of the community, which is absolutely the way you want to do it. You want to broadcast and try to amplify without offloading the work onto other people. And I think they've been doing a great job and they've been bringing attention. They've been uh, bringing to my attention people I, I had either heard before and didn't know about all their work or people I had not heard before and showing me new stuff. And so I just want to give a brief shout out because we certainly give Board Game Geek enough crap as it is for when they fail. So I just want never, I never speak <laughs> Board Game Geek. They're my favorite. We've talked about Core Worlds, the card game we love. We've also talked about Core Worlds Empires. It's coming out soon. I just want to make sure people realize that it is now on Kickstarter. It's going to end on Thursday, the 25th. So go check it out. It seems like very, they, I think they've really sort of captured the feeling of the card game and they didn't like fall back on all its tropes, you know, type thing. It's not just like a sort of board implementation of the card game. It's sort of like its own thing, but still gives you that same feel. And I'm very much looking forward to finally trying it. Core World Empires. So several years ago, it was announced that Emerson Matsuuchi, the designer of Spectre Ops, was going to be doing a Metal Gear Solid board game. And then there was some news, and then people waited, and then there were going to be announced uh, live plays, and people waited, and those slipped, and then they said, okay, we're going to talk about it later, and then that date slipped, and so on and so forth. Well, the news now is that IDW, the original publisher of the game, has now definitively passed, and the rights to the design have lapsed to the designer, and so now Emerson Matsuchi is trying to figure out what to do. He's trying to get the, he's trying to see if he can get the Metal Gear Solid license from Konami. If that doesn't work, he's gonna try to retheme it. He's very in, much interested in making sure that this design goes to market, and I wish him the best of luck. Uh, more news to follow. So it's been known that we like Hansa Tatanaka here on So Very Wrong About Games. Uh, we also like Gugong. These are both by the same designer. He has a new game on Kickstarter called Stroganoff. Either it's a game or a cookbook. Not entirely sure. But you should check it out. I was hesitant because I wasn't a big fan of, of the art style and or the, th- you know, the sort of look of it. But after reading a little bit of the gameplay and stuff, we're going to give it a try. Stroganoff by Andreas Stedding. We've been talking about Fister today, and Great Western Trail is getting a significant facelift. Eggert Spiel is going to be producing a kind of sort of second edition of Great Western Trail with a new cover design, and I think the cover design looks gorgeous. And this is going to be part of a new line of games. They're going to have a game that takes place in Argentina, a game that takes place in New Zealand, using the same fundamental elements, but, of course, 
tweaked here and there in various ways. They're also going to be republishing the expansion to Great Western Trail. Great Western Trail is a good game, and I'm glad that it is going to be getting more exposure, and uh, it looks very pretty now. I think they should should have properly rethemed it, though. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just the alien overlords. It's all very subtle. You can't yeah, yeah, broadcast. I was going to say, say yeah, you, you don't want them to know. Yeah. And lastly for me, uh, for the role players, there is something up on Kickstarter called Let's Roll. So if you're a role player that does a lot of stuff online with your other players, you don't do much stuff in person or or because of the current pandemic stuff, take a look at this thing. It's sort of a immersive, interactive, everyone joins in. They've had this thing running for quite a while now, but now they want to go at it full time. It's a real time sort of move your things around and all sorts of live action backgrounds. And i.e., if you're into online role playing, definitely check this out. It's something that you should be interested in. Let's roll on Kickstarter. Finally, for me, Mackerts is one of my favorite designers. And Concordia is now going to have a new solitaire mode. The Concordia Solitaria expansion is in the works. We'll be getting a playtest copy before too long to try to get through its paces. Apparently it is compatible with previously released expansions and maps. So good for that. And Matt Gertz says he's very pleased with how it's coming together. So let's hope that it is good. That is the Solitaire expansion to Concordia. Solitaria. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the feature game of the week, which is Trickshot. Trickshot is designed by Nikita Krylov and Artem Nechapurov of Wolf Designer. This is the same publisher, and Artem Nechapurov is the same designer that put out Guards of Atlantis and Warpgate, both games we've talked about extensively on the podcast, as well as the upcoming Guards of Atlantis 2, which will be available, I don't know, sometime after Chinese New Year, who knows. In terms of disclosure, this is a review copy we got from the publisher, and it should also be disclosed that I playtested a number of times with the designer on Tabletopia, where the game is currently available, as well as being fulfilled to Kickstarter backers as we speak. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Trickshot? So it gives you everything that you want out of Blood Bowl, but with only a two-minute setup, a quarter of the time and effort, and one-eighth of the fiddliness of what is Blood Bowl. It really gives you the essence of this of this Canadian pastime, which is hockey, all boiled down onto this board game that is uh, a joy to play. You know, I'm glad you expressed it so mathematically, Walker, because I think this is another opportunity to remind our listeners that between the two of us, you are very much the nerd, and I am, of course, very much the jock. Like many people who's, who did debating in high school and studied philosophy in university, you know, traditional jock endeavors. Uh, I am very much appreciative that there is now a way to further expand on my love of sports ball and all physical activities of all kinds in this board game entertainment venue. Sports puck. Precisely. Uh, you know, under the harsh glare of those Friday night lights, you know, you got to take your nine wood and play like a Heisman winner through all four periods. You know, when you set up that line drive into the end zone, you last your, land your massive slam dunk. You know, you're destined for the World Series and winning March Madness. Hockey. Couldn't set it better myself. Go sports ball. You know, I had to actually, when writing this, I had to look up to make sure that my recollection was correct, that hat trick was indeed a hockey term. So I couldn't include that because that would ruin the joke. You shouldn't have used period two. You should have like used quarter or inning. Wait, are there three, are there four periods in hockey? No, there are three. Three periods, but you could have, <laughs> but you could have used another word instead of using period. You said, you should, I thought, said I thought three. the precise combination you, of accurate and inaccurate, like gotcha, the position yeah. there would be good. Right. But <laughs> so he, here, here's one thing. I think this is actually this is this is a pretty good segue because uh, I when 
<laughs> when Artem Dutraparov, he first said, you, you have to try this new design that I'm designing uh, because you're Canadian. I felt profiled for one thing. <laughs> and I had to explain to him first off is that I have no interest in hockey at all. I, I just none, like negative interest in the theme. And despite that, uh, yeah, I'll talk about my, my, my enthusiasm with the game independently. But partially because of that, one of the rules, specifically how to deal with offsides, is confusing to me. I have to kind of sort of try to re- remind myself every time. But when I was ex- re-explaining the game to you, Walker, and I'm like, okay, here are the offsides rules. I'm not really – so there's this thing. When this thing happens, you're like, well, when off- when this happens, don't you just do the following two things in order? I'm like, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and you were just able to intuit from the way hockey works, which I think is a testament to the fact that there's you know some degree of verisimilitude going on well, here. Well, this is what I mean. I've got, I'll go into that because it does – it does gives you that – it adds just enough hockey not to bog down the rules. Like we've played, I don't want to say we've played tons of sports simulators, but you sort of open up the box and you see this like 50 page manual sure. of, of, you know, exhaustedness and speed and every player goes so fast and, and just know, cause it doesn't give you that, the flow and the thing. So all of your movement is in straight lines. So it's sort of like, you know, as you're gliding on ice, you can't, you know, turn very quickly. So it gives you that feeling that you're on ice. Sure. Like we already talked about the offsides and then it gives you the face off every time you score. Unlike other, you know, sports games where once one side scores, then you just give the, the puck ball thingy to the other side and then you they get a, a way, chance. In a way that might be more fair? No, that's <laughs> – Mark, hockey's not fair. Teams lose. You don't get a participation trophy here. <laughs> I'm just clearly a special snowflake, yes. <laughs> so just those th- three things alone I think is enough to give you that hockey feel because like like I said you just don't want too much because it'll just bog down the rules yeah fair enough the, the core of the rules of trick shot are incredibly simple and indeed the reason why the game works as well as it does and the reason why the game is so tense is often because of very very simple very very easy to grasp rules my favorite of which being you cannot activate the same player twice in a row you're obliged to set up your plays in such a way that you activate your players in the correct order and this is true is evocative of blood bowl but in a much more satisfying way in blood bowl all that meant was let me do a series of half a dozen boring almost guaranteed to succeed moves first before i get to my actual turn it was just so tedious to do all those rolls for no effect it's true and this dovetails into the other fantastic mechanism which is the push your luck right because not only do you have to go back and forth between players but you're going to be increasing your dice pool every time so the first thing you do you roll one die get an x x means you're going to your your turn is over unless you use one of your exhausted markers of which you get three you might get three every round so then it's a little bit like Blood Bowl where you, you're going to be doing your for sure things, the things you have to get done this turn you're going to start with, right? You do that in Blood Bowl some of the time. You know, you want to make sure you get these things done, standing up players, doing stuff like that. But in this game, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's like, I need to get the puck away from that player. I need to get some players around him so he can't move. So you're doing that first, and then you just can't do something with that player again. You have to go over here and that increases your dice pool by one. And then you go back to that player. Now you're rolling three dice or four dice. And I just love that constant push your luck, worrying about which actions you need to get done first. And it also encourages more dynamism because it encourages you to pass the puck more often, right? Between moving the puck carrier, moving somebody else for no reason, and then moving the puck carrier again, you're much better off being able to move someone into position, passing the puck to them, and then moving with them right away. You get the same amount of distance with less risk involved, and sometimes even more distance as a, as a consequence. You're right. The push your luck in trick shot is 
probably the best I've ever seen. I've complained a lot about Push Your Luck games, including Can't Stop the Venerable, you know, uh, sort of paradigmatic entry into the genre, that every feel, every role feels disconnected from the rest. Every role is the same percentage chance once you've put out your three markers. You have the same chance you're just deciding when to stop. In Trick Shot, there's escalating tension, escalating stakes, plus the recurring decision of when am I going to, when am I going to cut my losses and run and do what's called a line change, which refreshes all your rerolls and gets you, gets you a new special ability more on those later. But at the same time, always with the desire to do one more activation because you cannot let your opponent go because you want to do so many more things. Yeah. And there's a couple of nuances in there that we should talk about. There's the pack, the fact that when you do a reroll, you're only rerolling uh, the dice that have symbols on them. So that leads to like a little like weird mechanism where you might just roll one X and nothing else. So you're lucky. So you're only rerolling one die and the fact that some of your dice might have you might succeed but you've rolled a reaction as well which is going to allow your enemy to move into position that's going to like mess with your plans or completely stymie your plans so even though you succeed you still might choose to reroll that anyway and, and and rob them of that reaction and it's the reactions i think that lead considerably to the dynamism i've seen i've seen when explaining the game, sometimes people worry, especially after the the opening couple plays. Like, why doesn't why doesn't every face off play out the same way as every other face off? And the reason is, well, in addition to people making different decisions and people having different special powers, it's simply the fact that a simple reaction move, when triggered at the right time, can completely change the entirety of the play. And as a result, the board position varies itself completely organically by virtue of these reaction moves, which I think is a testament. Not just to how good the push your luck is by virtue of of the of good dice manipulation, but also of how incredibly chess like a lot of these moves are. Yeah, and I like how they've pulled everything out of the game, and most of the charm and most of the good parts is that it's boiled down to the essence, right? So you're not worried about everything set up exactly the same every time. You're not agonizing over where the players should go. You're not going to have these giant benefits because I set up better than you, and I just happen to get the right rolls. Um, there's none of these tackle zones or is a player, you know, down or, or, you know, did I just go through a tackle zone? Is he stunned or down or whatever? It's just nice, free flowing, enjoyable game. Now there are some tricky bits though, that still stick out in the memory. One of them is, and this, ha- this definitely was true of me for a lot of my plays. And is I, I think it was true of you for a lot of your plays. Correct me if I'm wrong. Sometimes you can do things diagonally. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes orthogonal matters. Sometimes it doesn't. And those differences, although summarized on a player aid, are a little bit tricky and a little bit uh, an element of rules grit that take a while to internalize. Yeah, I have that and only have one other thing that I felt as a pullback and it's the a lot of the a lot of the some of the special abilities are stated like when your opponent rolls this, you get to do X. And some people would just read into that. Well, they rolled the dice, they rolled that. I get to do that. Well, that's not how it works. It's like once they've decided to accept that roll and not do any more re-rollings, then they've actually rolled that symbol and you get to do what it says. So it's very nitpicky, but I really had to search to find something that it was, <laughs> you know, that I didn't like about this game. Yes. I am not a huge fan of having to explain the, the, the details of this, that, and the other. The results of the dice, just executing actions, is for the most part a joy. The only exception to that is how hits work and how pokes work and when penalties get triggered. But that's a very, very, very minor exception. Again, in a field that is usually characterized by large quantities of chromy rules, whereas Trick Shot, unlike Blood Bowl, unlike even 
baseball highlights and football highlights through their devotion to emulating the source material end up with a whole bunch of strange rules just to make it feel a little bit more like the sport trickshot manages by your account to feel fair enough uh, to feel close enough to the sport without a whole lot of those again the orthogonal versus diagonal is is, is a minor exception and i got to say that for my preference this is a little bit idiosyncratic but i really really do like this juxtaposition of a very chess like positioning where you can only move in straight lines where that move you did 3 turns ago to get that defenseman into position is going to make all the difference in the world with the push-your-luck element of heavy dice rolling and heavy variance for what dice results you're going to get for roll after roll after roll, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I, some people I game with really don't like that kind of game. But for me, it's more or less exactly what I want. And I think that in terms of you know facilitating the cleanliness and facilitating the fast play, uh, fast pace of play, it does a marvelous job of being evocative wh- without bar- bogging anything down. Talk about the fast play is the fact that the figures are fantastic and the sizes of them are just enough that you know exactly which players are which and which ones get the, which ones are allowed to hit others because, you know, this one's bigger and they all sort of look like hockey players still. The art is super cartoony. I'm a huge fan. I love the figures. I would have liked if there had been a little bit of non-white player representation, but that's a minor complaint in this context. I think that the components are fabulous. It's got a massive board. Which really gives you a sense of, again, of like, of speed, of people progressing across the ice and, you know, penetrating into somebody's offensive zone being a consequential act. And I've, I'm really pleased with the execution of all the components. And you get so many different line and arena cards in here. The, the, the sort of default way to play after you've mastered the basics, or, in, or indeed you can just jump right in this way, is everybody gets to pick a team, and the team comes with four line cards and a universal special ability. Every time you end the turn on your terms, or if there's a goal scored, you do what's called a line change, which means you're obliged to swap out your line card. So, a little bit like Cosmic Frog, albeit in a different way, you're constantly cycling through different special abilities, although here it's a universe of, of four different ones. And knowing which one to trigger when can be hugely consequential. And although the special abilities aren't anything like, you know, fire breathing or anything like that, they're just these subtle tweaks on the rules, which, again, help to make sure that no two board states are going to be the same by clever use of these situational advantages. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I will say, however, I will flag, I'm in no position to judge whether, you know, Boston feels like Boston or Montreal feels like Tr- Montreal or Toronto feels like Toronto. Uh, I couldn't it's, say. It, it slightly feels as though they've tried to put a little bit of theme into, you know, the type of team that they're known for, but mm-hmm. I can't say either myself. Like okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, I played hockey for, you know, 25 years, but I'm not, I'm not into watching others play sports. I'm not when you're that, that good, you don't have any interest no, in, in watching. I'm not, not that I'm that good. I'm just, I'm just that. Well, well, it was clear that you didn't really know much about hockey because I remember I was doing something with number four and you said that number four was named after Bobby Orr and you never finished your sentence. Bobby or who? Uh, groan. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> <laughs> there was that other player who was Canadian who was known for always leaving things disorderly, right? They would say, that's Mark Messi, eh? Don't, Mark. I should stop? You should stop. Okay. <laughs> We're going to get enough trouble as it is. I just have so, so much passion for the sport, Walker. <laughs> I like everything about it. You just talked about the team cards. It's going to make every game different because every team is slightly different and it looks like they put some effort into making them sort of balanced. They all have sort of like one big power card. And, and like you said, the not just now, but earlier when we were playing, they've sort of offset their team ability with their major power. So they sort of like conflict with each other and sort of balance each other, 
balance each other out. I really think that was a cool way to do the teams. Yeah, I played a game as Denver, and Denver's team ability is when they do a line change, they don't refresh all three stamina tokens, they only refresh two of them. And I initially thought, oh, this just looks like a straight handicap. And sure enough, it is. But in the context of one of their line cards that says, you can do a line change, i.e. refresh your stamina tokens without ending your turn. I'm like, well, great. (laughs) And so it made sense. The two in combination made sense. And they're just all these little touches about how one line card works with the next or how it interacts with the arena card or just the subtle kind of chess-like calculations you have to make by virtue of the geography of the board in combination with the movement restrictions and what somebody can and can't do at various times. It's really a subtle, brilliantly done design that leads to a very, very, very compelling two-player experience. And as I say, the combination of push-your-luck and chess-like maneuvering isn't necessarily to everyone's taste, but it's exactly what I like out of games of this of this length and weight. Like I've written here, the only thing I'm I'm missing is pushing people into the crowd, Mark. I love setting up that <laughs> that you know, that hit where you block them from moving forward and your only place that they're allowed to be pushed is into the crowd for that automatic injury. I just you know, every time I, <laughs> I, I set it up and then realize that it, it doesn't work that way. You did huffily comment when I explained how hitting works that this was European hockey. <laughs> and I, I felt like I, you had never revealed yourself to be more stereotypically Canadian than at that moment. <laughs> or at least some of our worst stereotypes. And lastly, for me, you you pointed this out, but they did a nice little touch on the scoreboard where they could have just either left it blank or just printed it the same as the other side. But the home team changes depending on what side of the scoreboard you're on. I thought that was just a nice touch that they didn't have to do. It's a slick package. I mean, every every component is beautiful. Every element seems very well thought out. This is a game that very much like, uh, very much, very much, unlike a lot of the other two player sports games. Everything fits together really tightly in a way that can appeal to somebody who is actively disinterested in the sport. And I wanted to like Blood Bowl and couldn't. I wanted to like football highlights. I wanted to like baseball highlights. I've wanted to like a number of these games because they have some clever bits in them, but they were clearly designed by fans of the sport for for fans of the sport and just couldn't breach that gap. Whereas a number of really, really solidly designed games could appeal to people regardless of the theme. And Trickshot is, I think, that elevated level of design whereby if you appreciate the theme, you seem to get more out of it. That's definitely been my experience showing it to people who enjoy hockey. But it can still appeal to someone like me who is actually put off by hockey. And the other thing is the fact that there's figures, people that are right into the sport will be able to paint their guys exactly like their favorite team, <laughs> right? And, and sure. paint the opposing guys like their their, their rivals. <laughs> or, you know, if another family member likes another team, they'll paint it that color and you get some, you'll get some good play that way, I think. I have the pre-painted miniatures and I'm very, very happy. <laughs> so to sum up, we're both huge fans of Trickshot. It's a marvelous two-player game. It is definitely the kind of game that I'm going to keep forefront of, for, uh, forefront of mind when during those rare two-player game sessions. 2021 is off to a great start for Wolf Designer. If they're able to get Guards of Atlantis 2 out this year, it'll be a, a, a bit of a banner year. And honestly, uh, this has now been three, I think, excellent releases in a row from Wolf Designer. And I can't wait to see what they have in the future. Yeah, just for, like you said, for, just for the simplicity of the rules, it's going to be one of those great games that you can just pull out and just uh, step right into playing without having to go over the rules again. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the show, tell a friend.
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>